Hello, Tome Show listeners. This is your Tome editor, Sam Dillon, and I am here to bring you exclusive Gen Con D&D audio. This is coming to you, just like in previous years, unedited and uncut. We hope you enjoy it, and if you like the show, please visit our Tome Show sponsor, Noble Knight Games, where Out of Print is available again. And if you visit their site, please tell them that the Tome Show sent you. I don't know. I assume you guys knew who I was when you booked the interview. <laughs> I don't know how that works. Like, you just book interviews because why not I need something to do at 10 a.m. it's better than being in the crushed in the exhibit hall you wouldn't want to be asleep yeah <laughs> you're giving him that that's awesome it's, it functions yeah it's crazy so the, uh, I'm still waking up usually I'm not awake at this, t- uh, this time on my internal clock so yeah hopefully I don't just like face plant middle interview we'll see The um, so yeah this is basically just an open round table uh, you guys don't know my position I'm the uh, lead designer on 5th edition head up the creative end of Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, I think my title is senior manager, which is just completely vague. I could be managing anything, but I am managing D&D creative. So um, I guess we could just dive in for questions, uh, just round table. So I don't know how you guys want to hand if we just want to go around the table or if we want to do it like McLaughlin Group style, I can just point at people and challenge <laughs> you with random questions. Like. So, a quick year summary that you can tell us. Yeah, sure. So basically this time last year, uh, we were launching, we were had j- just started the launch of 5th Ed, because we're at the end of July right now. So 5th Ed launched last July with a starter set. Uh, since then, we released the starter, all three core rule books. Uh, those are all up by the end of the year. Uh, and we had the Tyrion Dragons campaign, which launched last fall. Uh, that was a Tiamat's attempt to return to Forgotten Realms. Uh, she was thwarted by the heroes. And like a lot of our campaigns, that was both the tabletop role-playing game, we had a, a playable campaign for that, and then our, our digital game partners, like uh, Neverwinter had a module, that let you fight Tiamat, let you fight the dragon cultists. Then in the spring, we had uh, Prince of the Apocalypse, was our second storyline. Uh, that was Elemental Evil, uh, entering the Forgotten Realms. The uh, four prophets of Elemental Evil, air, earth, fire, and water. Uh, the, the main storyline with the dragons were very much like a brute force, overwhelming invasion. Uh, Elemental Evil was a much more subtle threat. It's all about deception. The cultists typically appear to be fairly benign at first glance, but once you delve deeper into their machinations, it turns out they reveal their sinister secrets. So, very similar to Tyranny of Dragons, that had the launch of a tabletop role-playing adventure, which is a bit different for us compared to other edition launches. Uh, within the first 12 months, having to complete levels 1 to 15 campaigns, we had never really we had never done that before. Typically, like when you look at 3rd and 4th edition, by the end of the first year, you maybe had across like four or five adventure modules, like levels one to twelve. So covering it twice from one to fifteen was really big for us. Uh, and so those are our two storylines. And now our next storyline launching in September is Rage of Demons. So that uh, we were thinking, well, what would be an interesting group? Demons are pretty much an obvious choice. They're one of the biggest threats in Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, and it turns out that in the Underdark, someone has been messing with the fundamental nature of magic in the Underdark and used it to bring in not a demon lord or two demon lords, but essentially all the demon lords. They're now all running around the Underdark, and it's up to the heroes to send them all back to the Abyss. So Out of the Abyss is similar to our last two campaigns, levels 1 to 15, covers that entire story from the tabletop role-playing game. And our digital partners... Uh, the Neverwinter MMO is going to have content that features demons in the Underdark. And we're also launching a new video game, uh, Sword Coast Legends, that launches in Q3. And that'll feature Belafoss as one of the main villains, a would-be demon lord, uh, in, his, in his machinations to gain power. Uh, and so, yeah, that's really excited about that. It's got a very strong DM mode, kind of like if you remember back Neverwinter Nights, it's taking that to the, really to the next level making much more plug-and-play, letting one player take on the role of Dungeon Master, creating an adventure ahead of time that the DM's friends can play through, and the DM can dynamically adjust based on player decisions, or just, hey, this counter's not difficult enough, I want to throw in some more monsters, or you, you've decided to ally with this guy, so I mean, this is how things are going to change. So it's pretty exciting for us. It's like our, our, our next big launch. If last year was 5th edition, this year is Sword Coast Legends getting back into that sort of, you know, single-player storyline game with a multiplayer mode. So. You said that was Q3? Uh, yeah. And then uh, the storyline, uh, is that something that you expect DMs to be able to run for the players, or is it mostly a solo thing? So there's a, there's a solo storyline the game comes with, okay. so single-player mode. And then, yeah, for DM, you can then create your own storylines. 
Now you mentioned that um, this edition's launch has been very different than previous editions, right? It's focused on these big campaign arcs and whatever. And it also means that we haven't seen the splat books and the options and, and a much slower pace. We're getting products every six months instead of every month. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the reasoning behind why doing yeah. that? So that's really driven by, uh, within the 5th the edition uh, process, we had an enormous public playtest. And so part of that, in addition to getting feedback on the rules, was our attempt to learn people who play D&D, why do they play D&D, what are their play patterns, what do they like, what do they not like, and what do they need. You can imagine, like, if we were running an MMO or any online game, we'd have all that data just constantly. So our challenge was, how can we collect that with an analog game? And we did it by just relentlessly polls and surveys and all this other, you know, basically just asking questions as often as possible. So, overwhelmingly, if you see us doing something with the, with the role-play, the tabletop role-playing game, it is because that is what we've seen from the audience's feedback, what people want. So one of the interesting things that's happened with the role-playing game is we really emphasize having these complete campaigns out of the gate. And, yeah, the, the first player options book really is going to be uh, uh, Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide, which comes out in early November. Uh, that's the first one that's going to have like actual like new, new options. We had an expansion for Element for uh, Prince of the Apocalypse. It was a free online expansion with a few few new options. But this is the first time we're doing a lot of stuff. I think all but three character classes get get new builds. And it's our first campaign setting, sort yeah. of. Yeah, yeah. And it's, and it's, it's also described in the sort. You've, you've also reversed the campaign setting release. Instead of a big guide and then regional ones, you're starting regional. Exactly. We're trying to start smaller because what we've seen pretty consistently is the volume of information we're releasing in the past was far greater than people could absorb. That the game was, I'm trying to think how to put it, a friend of mine put it to me, he's like, I'm starting my second campaign, we finished, uh, I think they played TNU Dragons, and he was starting a homebrew campaign. He said, it's so great, the players are still just using the player's handbook. I don't need to go and read a bunch of books to figure out what the characters are doing, because everyone's still just using the player's handbook. And by design, the player's handbook is supports, I think at least, far more character types than the past, because we use the, the subclass mechanic, where if you're playing a wizard, if you're playing an illusionist versus playing an evoker, there's a lot more unique mechanics. Rather than the past, you'd say, okay, every illusionist and evokers have essentially the same mechanic, just applied to different types of spells. Now it's like, well, if you're an evoker, you have this unique thing that no one else gets. There's essentially one type of wizard for, for every school of magic. So there's, and now, now I'm going to forget how many schools of magic there are and say eight, but I'm sure that's wrong, because that's kind of, I always get it wrong at Gen Con, because I don't have any sleep. The, uh, but it feels much different. If you're, if you're a wizard player, if you play an illusionist, then you play an evoker, you really feel like you're playing a different character. The mechanical differences between those options are much bigger. And that was really a big part of the design. If you look at feats, where each feat's much bigger and has a much bigger effect, the idea being do fewer mechanics, but each of those mechanics having a much bigger effect on a character. So rather than lots of small little decisions, make fewer but bigger decisions. So just within the scope of the player's handbook, there's a lot more variety to be found within each character class. Even the fighter, if you play a Battlemaster fighter and take combat maneuvers, there are still enough maneuvers you can just probably build five, six different fighters without any overlap and feel like you're building a very different character. So that's driven by this idea of giving everyone just the player's handbook as their starting point, and then the variety of there coming in very slowly so that dungeon masters feel like they can assimilate this stuff as it comes out. People don't feel overwhelmed. It's much more of a shared language at the table. And we even, I don't know if we've said this in the DMG or we talked about this, but the way we designed the game, we assumed that in a campaign, you're using the core rule books plus one other player option book. Like, we actually don't assume that you're going to take the Elemental Evil expansion and, and the Sword Coast Adventures guide and combine those. I mean, you can. We try to make those compatible. But what just simply happens is, is anyone, if you've played Magic or any of the collectible game, as you add more and more mechanics, the chances of a broken combo coming into play just go up until it's a certain. And so having that sense of uh, magic does set rotation, you know, things like that, where it's like, well, these options are now in tournament legal play, and these ones go away. If you follow our organized play campaign, we'll typically have one expansion book per season or per year. That's your legal expansion addition to the core. Just because, it, again, it just becomes unmanageable. If we try to balance everything, we'll end up the, the amount of content we can do just becomes narrower and narrower. So yeah, that's really why the uh, for the player's end, you're seeing far fewer stuff. And again, that's driven by what we've seen in terms of feedback of how many options people want in the game, what they're comfortable with understanding and, and working with. 
the other side of the coin is we've done now when, when Out of the Abyss comes out, we'll have three complete campaigns on the shelf. And that, for us, one thing we've seen with 5th edition is a really huge influx of new players. And I think a lot of that is because at launch, you could buy the Tyranny of Dragons campaign and just start playing. And that would keep you busy for like, you know, four, five, six months. Then you could buy part two and keep going for another three, four, five, six months. And now we have uh, Prince of the Apocalypse available. You know, you can just go out, you know, drop some money on that, and now you have another nine months of gaming. And it's been interesting to see reading reviews on places like Amazon or just when people blog about it, how many people are saying, compared to say the third or fourth edition launch, where you'd get much more like, well, here's the game, and maybe I played a one, one or two sessions if I played at all. And now I much more consistently see people saying, well, you know, I started playing DD and we're playing Tyranny of Dragons, and we're still playing three months later. Uh, I actually met someone a couple weeks ago who was D &D, you know, happy wearing a D&D t-shirt and he's oh and I you know, played D&D &D. and it was interesting the way he described it was he has two campaigns he runs he's running uh, Tyranny of Dragons and he also has his homebrew campaign and he's about my age he's 40 has kids he'd love to run his homebrew campaign but he just doesn't have enough time to prep for it so when he's not ready for his homebrew campaign he's running Tyranny of Dragons so out of his four monthly sessions, he probably runs one homebrew and three Tyranny of Dragons. And I think that if we didn't have those campaigns available, and he was also he was about to start uh, Prince of the Apocalypse, they were finishing Tyranny, if we didn't have those available, I think he'd just be playing once a month. And so I think we're seeing people, more people playing, more people playing more often, and because of that accessibility has been really turned up, we're getting a lot more younger people. We're getting a lot more new games. No. So, that's, which has been great. I mean, that was one of the big goals of 5th edition, was to make the game uh, more accessible. Not, not to suggest that there's uh, anything wrong with that approach or having those campaigns available, uh, but will there be any uh, books or options specifically designed uh, more generically, not tied in to one of the campaigns, so for people who are doing those homebrews? Yeah, oh yeah, so that is part, like, that's where, like, a lot of the Unearthed Arcana, the monthly article comes in. Mm -hmm. We also, right now, uh, when we think of the edition, you know, as we launch stuff, we kind of think, okay, if you have a bookshelf at a store, or, you know, you're browsing Amazon or a game store or wherever, trying to create a uh, set of products that makes cohesive sense. So right now, we're sort of, we launch with these, campaign, these campaigns to play. The, uh, we have a Forgotten Realms source book that's coming out. And once we have that foundation in, then it's easier for us to do, okay, if you're if you are a new player coming to a store, I haven't played D&D before. Okay, well there's three campaigns I can pick from now that I can buy. I want to know more about the Forgotten Realms, that book will soon be out there. Once you have those bases covered, then it gives us more flexibility to do something that might be more mechanically driven or you know look at doing a different setting and things like that. So part of it is the tempo of establishing kind of like what our backlist looks like and then doing things that are a little more adventurous. So, like, for instance, we just did a Psionics playtest. Right. We just launched that, and that's something that I would see we would likely, if we were to put that into a product, it wouldn't be a product necessarily attached to a setting. It might just be, here's a book of, you know, new new mechanical options across the board, or something like yeah. that. Because knowing that Psionics is, I mean, you think about Psionics is not necessarily a big part of the Forgotten Realms. It's, you know, it's there, but it's never, it's not like Eberron or Dark Sun where it's a featured part of it. But we know a lot of people want to use it because they either play those campaigns or they want it for their own their own. So for us, it's kind of managing. You kind of think of as you fill in those those gaps. We want to make sure that, that bookshelf, when someone's navigating D and D for the first time, that there's the stuff they need there. That's kind of what we're filling first, and then we can get into the more specialized stuff. The more stuff that's like, oh, you're a really engaged hobbyist. You've been playing for years. You kind of handle stuff that's a bit, you know, more do it yourself. Do you have any specific plans for what those might be? Can't announce I'm sure yet. he does. Yeah, right. <laughs> that is one thing, too, that's different. Like, when we announced Sword Coast Adventures Guide, the only a couple months before it released, that's kind of more the mode we're in now, too, trying to... A lot of that's just because the... I mean, the the announcing stuff a year ahead of time, that's like... We've been doing that since, like, the, the 80s. So a lot of it's just... That's just how gaming media works now. If you announce stuff too early, it's old news. No one, so we're trying to stay... We announce something when it's going to stay top of mind longer. So. Okay. You used to make big announcements... Uh, Back in the Bill Slavicek days, right? He'd have his, his Steve Jobs sort of presentations of what's coming out for the next six months. And uh, and, and generally speaking, the con presence of Watsi has in the past been much larger. In the last few years, it's slowly shrunk to the point that this year there's four of you here and, and no seminars, no party, no just 
bunch of tables gaming. Can you talk a little about why that shift has happened? Yeah, so basically for Gen Con, we, so we hadn't had this talk about you know, our conventions and what we prioritize. And what we noticed when we started going to PAX was if we did a seminar at PAX, we'd get like 800 people in the room. You know, absolutely fill the room up. If we did a seminar at Gen Con, we could like half fill a small room over in the hotel. That's because like, I'm recording it. Yeah. Home. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, but what, what we kind of figured out was we looked at what people were doing was people come to Gen Con to play games. Like, it's the tabletop gaming convention. They just want to come, sit down and play games all weekend, and they want to buy the new game release. But our release schedule doesn't really sync with Gen Con. Like, Gen Con's super early this year. So for us to, like, you can imagine if Gen Con occurred the same date every year and you're a game publisher, like, you know, okay, I have a year now. I've released my big thing. I have a year now to release my next one. Except this year you'd have 11 months because Gen Con's a month early, and so you can't necessarily... So we're more driven by uh, the more ebb and flow of game releases, more, you know, like, in, like, like Q4 being a big, a big release time for video games, you know, things like that. So we don't necessarily want, want to tether ourselves to a game convention that can move, because it just makes sense, game convention date moves. So, and we've also, uh, so that's why we don't, and we don't have a sales presence at Gen Con, haven't had it for a few years, because our emphasis at Wizards, our emphasis is on game stores. We'd rather have you buy a gaming product from a game store, support your local gaming community, than buy it from our booth at Gen Con. So that's kind of part of it. So that's kind of why we don't have a booth, because we have a booth, typically you're selling something, we don't sell stuff at Gen Con anymore, so it doesn't make sense to first have a booth. And then if you're not selling something, the other thing you can do for people is give them a place to play games. And what we saw consistently was people, if they had a choice between going to a seminar to hear about D&D or going to a gaming event to play D&D, they're overwhelmingly choosing to go play D&D. So that's why we don't do the seminars as much anymore. We focus more on packs. We have a slate of seminars of packs this year uh, talking about D&D and, all, and you know, everything attached to it. So then once that goes away, like, okay, we have a play area. And then we used to have like the statues and all the big media push. But now we do all that stuff in packs in terms of getting the word out about stuff. Because just with the, with the, with PAX's emphasis on video games, there's a lot bigger uh, media presence there. Okay, I mean, obviously you guys are here, so that's why we're talking. <laughs> but if you go to PAX, that's where you know with all the video game stuff there, it's just a the it's a show that I think is more conducive to media. So then we don't necessarily need the statues and stuff. It really just comes down to if people just want to come to Gen Con and play games, why don't we just carve out a corner of the convention space and give them a place to play D and D? So because if you know, we still have exclusive OP content here. We still have the uh, the uh, uh, Rage of Demons preview adventure for OP is here. So for us, this is really an organized play show. So we see it as, hey, Gen Con is where you play Adventures League. This is the show you want to go to to get early access to content, to you know, to play marathon sessions, to do the special events. That's where our focus really is. That, and again, that's it's kind of like with our release schedule. It's just based on, well, what are people doing? What do they want from us? Trying not to put square pegs in round holes. So. So PAX is much more where you'll see stuff we'll have. We have a booth at PAX this year, more panels and stuff like that, because that's just what we see. And actually, PAX is the opposite. We don't have a formal play area at PAX, because we saw the opposite. We could have a seminar room with 800 people in it, and then if we had the D&D play area, we wouldn't draw anywhere near as many people playing D&D, because I think typically at PAX, people are doing more, they go playing demos at each, at each booth, they're much more in the exhibit hall, and then doing things like the concerts and after hours. So it's essentially the two shows are exact opposites of each other. So, so you're saying I should be sending somebody to PAX every you year? Should. <laughs> <laughs> Come out to Seattle. So. So, I have to get back on video games, but uh, I'd love to hear more about the DM mode and Soul Coast Legends. Can you tell us any more about that? So I can't give too many more details. That's more the... Um, in fact, if you want, I have a uh, Greg Tito's card. He's one, so I can, if you want to set up something with the, the Sword Coast Legends guys. So that's a licensed game by Endspace, and it's just the kind of thing where I don't, I don't want to try to say more about it because I have played it, but I don't know what they officially want to talk about yet because it's their project. So okay, that makes sense. But yeah, uh, make sure that I give you Greg's card before okay. you go. Yeah. I'm sure he'll be more than happy to set something up. So. That reminds me of um, I've had a lot of conversations about where. The, the brand of D&D has been going in the last few years, and as the, the staff has shrunk and, and also shifted, there's a lot more brand people and licensing people and that kind of stuff. Uh, an analogy that, I, that I've discussed before with people is, is kind of like with Marvel Comics, the way it works now, right? They have the comics, but it's, all, it's almost ancillary because the real money makers, the movies and, all, and the video games and all that. Is that sort of where D&D as a brand is going to? The tabletop is core, but... but yeah, it's, Does it focus it, on the other things? It, it's Well, I, I don't want to use the word focus, because I think it kind of makes it sound like we're ignoring the tabletop game. 
but it's much more looking at the tabletop role-playing game and rather than saying, look, it, it, in terms of its importance, why is the tabletop game important? What's important because people love the tabletop game, they want to play it. And that kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about doing all this data collection, get a sense of, well, if you're a tabletop fan, what is it that you actually want? Or is what we're providing to you make sense, you know, in terms of the average tabletop player? The... Um, and so for us, it was much more making sure that that release schedule made sense, that style of game, and going more rules light, less techie, things like that, and and then finding you know what is the right flow of products. And I think it is. I think the Marvel comparison is fair in that you know when you think of comic books, they're really important. It's not necessarily the biggest business in the world, but it's incredibly important. So I think that's a good way to look at it. It's not something where we look at and go, wow, you know, this is this is going to be a billion dollar business, but it's a business that because people fall in love with it so deeply, just in terms of what D&D is, it's incredibly important. And if anything, that actually is sort of why, you know, we part of the advantage of having a slower release schedule is we're able to put a lot more effort into fewer books. So more playtesting. We do by far the most rigorous playtesting of any tabletop company. Uh, and, you know, and things like our monthly Unearthed Arcana, where here's mechanics, anyone gets to playtest, give us feedback on, and stuff like that. And then when you look at video games, I mean, it's just the kind of thing when you think about it, Tabletop D&D, I have to get four of my friends together for four hours, someone has to prep the adventure, there's just a big overhead. And there's it's kind of a fork in the road when you look at it. You can either decide, let's take the tabletop game and try to change it, so in terms of a business, it looks more like a video game and we can make more money off of it. Or you can say, the tabletop game is what it is and that's awesome and people love it for what it is. Don't try to change that, just make sure what you're doing is making people happy and then, if people love D&D, when they're not playing the tabletop game, because it's hard to get a group together and you need four hours and you need four friends to play, well, if you want to play D&D but you can't because you can't play the tabletop game, what makes sense then for us to, to partner with someone to do a license, like a licensed video game or a board game? Like the Sword Ghost Legends makes sense. You know, with the DM mode, it makes a ton of sense. I can't get my friends together because of geography or I don't have time to prep. Well, but we can play this and it's something similar. You know, but it's a video game. And it's not... It's about letting the tabletop game be the best version of the tabletop game it can be, and then finding out, okay, if that means then that the barrier of entry is too high for some people, or limits, like, I want to play 20 hours of D&D a week, but really I can only play four hours of the tabletop game, what can we do to fill those other 16 hours with something that's D&D? It feels authentically D&D, and it's, it's fun, and it's great and engaging, but it might be that, well, I actually now am an MMO player, because that's just where I am. I just, I mean, I'm in this boat, I just had a daughter, I'm an eight-month-old at home, I, it's not as easy for me now to play a weekly game outside of work. I'm lucky I work with a bunch of D&D friends, so, but it would be very hard because I just never know, well, you know, maybe sick tonight or I didn't get any sleep. Like, oh, I'm trying to prep my campaign and uh, my daughter's crying a lot, and she's fun, so I can't, obviously can't prioritize that over my daughter, and I think that's where a lot of people are. Or if they're a student with classes, finals, and stuff like that, you know, there's always something getting in the way. So it's really just about saying... In 1978, 1975, when the game launched, it was a very different time in terms of entertainment. And now we're here 40 years later, you know, when you think of people's free time and how they manage it and how people are just, you know, socially, making sure D&D is still relevant and still fitting in with how people want to interact with You mentioned several times uh, you standard four-hour night adventure, and I assume that's what your feedback is telling you that's how long people play. Do you ever use that in your in your adventure design, that idea that, you know, what can we make that's a four-hour category? Yeah, I think typically when we're doing an adventure, like, um, there's kind of two ways we approach it. With Tyranny of Dragons, the adventure was fairly, what I think was very narrative, like it's event A, then event B, and event C. And the idea was to try to, like, each episode could be, like, you know, kind of think of it in four-hour blocks. The, um, with Prince of the Apocalypse, we actually did it was much more open-ended. It was more like the players get to kind of pick where they want to go, more sandboxy. We've actually found people like that sandbox approach more. It's not decisively more. It's not like oh, it's not like so much more that we would never do a, a story-based thing. But it'd be kind of like 55-45, like a breakdown. So typically, if we're doing a more narrative adventure, yeah, we try to think of it in terms of that hour. You know, like how many hours it takes to do something. So you can have that like, oh, okay, this is it's chapter five, and we'll play through, and it's like a, you know, at I thought the four-hour mark is when we're hitting the climax of this episode, so we feel like it's a satisfying conclusion. With something that's more sandboxy, obviously it's a lot harder to control that. You kind of the group's tempo is going to determine that. But it is interesting that people seem to generally favor the sandbox approach, and I think part of that might be because while four might be like an average or a median, like there are there is enough variance that designing too rigidly to that 
could be a problem. Like if you have, if you play a couple hours, you know, two hours at a time or six hours, right? It gets it can, it can be kind of fragile. So so we think about it, but we try. It really kind of depends on the type of adventure that, that we're designing. Yeah, my kids don't do four hours. Yeah. Okay. Can't yeah. Fit that in before bedtime. So yeah. So. <laughs> Your experience right now, a year off, right? Um, you've had the final product of the rules. Presumably, you personally have had it for more than a year. Yeah. Um, now that it's in print and sort of, to a certain degree, immutable, um, what would you actually change? Oh. Like, is there any given thing you'd go back so and do differently? What's the skill challenge? And, yeah. and, on, that, <laughs> and on, on that same note, um, what what is your opinion on using errata or something like that to try and change oh, those things? So, so I would we will never I hope unless they <laughs> replace me we won't use errata to make the kind of changes I'm about to talk about. Okay. The thing is, for us, errata is purely the rule says X and it's supposed to say Y, and that's actually causing problems at the table. So it has to be all three of those. If the rule says exactly. The rule says X, but it actually says Y, but Y is okay. We probably won't change it. Okay. Uh, if it's like, oh, you get plus eight, and like, oh, that really should be plus two, so that's wildly overpowered, we would do a rata for it. But things like, and actually, this is an interesting one, this is new, right? Because we just talked about this yesterday, no, two days ago. Crawford and I were talking, like, oh, we changed. We Breaking. exactly this conversation. <laughs> Breaking thrill. Yeah. So the one class that I realized irritates the heck out of me, and it's, it's, it's a popular class. Like, when you talk about changing this, you're always like, yeah, you're always nervous. Like, people like this, so we change it. That's dangerous. The uh, one thing I really don't like, I don't like the fighter. Okay. And I realize I don't like the fighter because every other character class, when you think about when you make essentially that subclass choice, if you're playing a cleric, it's like, okay, you can be a cleric of, of the god of war or of, you know, the, the god of life. And like, oh, I can picture who that is in my mind, right? Like, that's character. If you're playing a rogue, you can be an assassin or you can be a thief, right? Okay, I get who that is. But when you get to the fighter, it's like, you can be a champion or you can be a battle master. And I don't think anyone knows what that is, right? If you're like, what is a champion? Is the guy walking around with a belt? Is it, what's the battle master? I used to play a lot of battle tech, so I think it's 85-ton mech with, like, you know, the specific weapons, right? And so that, to me, was, like, the biggest missed opportunity. Because when you think fighter, what you really should be thinking, oh, what kind of fighter do you want to play? Do you want to play a knight, a gladiator, a brawler, a berserker, right? And, like, we totally whiffed on, like, this is, like, what are the big things in class design? Now you get to give me all, you got me all riled up, right? I'm all revved up. I'm going. The, uh, if there's a PR person, they'd be like, pulling me back. You know? <laughs> Stop Merles, right? But the, no, it's just this idea that one of the big principles of the 5th edition design was working with nouns and, nouns and verbs, right? That everything we tell you, you can be this thing, it's a noun that has resonance. It's not like, you can be a, you know, champion's a great example. It's empty calories. What is a champion? Like, could a paladin be a champion? You know, that you could. Could a ranger be a champion? That might actually make sense. But if you say, like, gladiator, like, oh, that's a fighter, right? Gladiators kick ass. They're just all about weapons and trickery and all this stuff. A knight. A knight, a knight could be a paladin, but then when you get in the lore of the game, oh, knights don't use divine spells, right? They swear fealty to the crown. That's a fighter. And so the nouns we tried to use to describe the character types, one of the resonant and interesting, right? And the fighters completely whiff. They're just so, like, we were so caught up. Like, we need a simple fighter. But we need a complex fighter. And, oh, my God, how will we handle this? We got so down that mechanical rabbit hole. We ended up with these totally flavorless names, and so like that is. If I could go back and sh if I could like shake myself, you know, like eighteen months in the past, just no, don't do it, right? Completely change how we approach the fighter. Now that's something which the fighter is fun. People really like the fighter; it grades really well. The Rangers obviously a character class and has some issues in terms of our playtest feedback. People are like, uh, they're not really crazy about it. It's still like in terms of, like more than like. Over 50% of people say they like the Ranger. So it's not like, oh god, it's horrible, everyone hates it. But the thing with the Ranger is, the, and I've talked about this, and it's just, you know, the issue with the Ranger is, it's always been a mishmash of stuff. Like in a first edition, the Ranger was like, you get druid spells, and, and magic user spells, and you can use crystal balls, right? And then in second edition, actually, I thought got the Ranger perfect. It was like, oh, you can fight with two weapons, and no one else can do that, so that's pretty cool. You can sneak around like a rogue. Like, you're the only fighter type that can do that. That was pretty cool. And you can track, and no one else can track. Oh, well, that's cool. And then third edition came along and said, everyone can fight with two weapons, and everyone can be stealthy, and everyone can track. And we kept saying that. So now it's like the Ranger's like, what do I got? I have nothing, right? I'm just 
the guy with the pet wolf, right? Like, and that can be a <laughs> druid, right? Like, so, like, so we've been talking, and I, I was so about a month ago, I kind of started writing like a document, like what would a knowing what we know now, what fifth edition, what what would the ranger be? And I think the uh, we'll see. There might be an unearthed Canada before the end, end of the year that has a new character class, like completely new take on the ranger. Right, completely new, like not completely new lore. Like it's embedded in this idea of like the nature champion, but being much more aggressively like here is a very unique thing that only the ranger gets. That is actually might be really cool, but you know it's always tricky. We tried doing that with a sorcerer and the warlock during the playtest, and people generally said, "Oh, this class is kind of cool," but I hate it because well, no, I can't. I have a sorcerer right now, and I can't convert my sorcerer character to fifth because now you're saying sorcerers are warrior mages, and like that's not my character. So it's always tricky. So it's going to be kind of fun to try to thread the needle of, like, it's completely new mechanic, but flavor-wise, you could take your existing range and go, oh, I can totally convert to this character class, and I still feel story-wise, my character's consistent, and everything makes sense. But now I have, like, this really unique thing that makes me distinct from all the other character classes. And I think the important thing is that unique thing has to really resonate with this idea of, I am, like, the defender of nature, and I'm the outdoorsman. And I think the other side of the coin, speaking, this is what prompted the entire fighter thing, was we do have people saying, hey, I want a ranger who doesn't cast spells. And, like, that's a fighter, right? That's, a, that's like a fighter who's like a scout or something like that, right? Like, you're a fighter who's very stealthy and can survive in the wild. Or probably an archer. <laughs> yeah, or it can be a rope. But that, so part of it has to be, like, we, if we do a new ranger as a playtest, right, it's a playtest, it's then also say, well, here's the fighter or the rogue who scoops up the non-magic using ranger. The more mundane, outdoorsy character. So, so, yeah, that was, like, the big thing. I hadn't really thought of the fight until we had this discussion. We're like, well, here's how character classes should work, and we're all proud of ourselves because all these... Uh, and then the fighter just did not match at all. Like, how did this happen? Like, we totally whiffed on this. But in a situation like that, the idea would be not be to fix with errata, but instead just add to what already exists with new new Exactly, skills. exactly. And what, what touched this off was uh, we just did a, a, our latest plus survey. was, like, what, what character types do you want out of the game? And one of them was Samurai. We were talking about, well, if we were to do a Samurai, it would probably be a character who's kind of like like the non-magical ranger, essentially the non-magical paladin. You're a non-magic user who's got like this really, you know, this resolve, like, I've dedicated myself to this cause. It could be like, you know, the crown or a lord or a daimyo, whatever. And that gives me an inner strength that other fighters don't have. And like, we are kind of playing, oh, that made me call like the devoted defender or something like that. Or the defender, that's just the character's name. I think, oh, you can play a knight, you can play a samurai, you can play, you know, like a, a Persian immortal or something like that, right? This is a really hardcore guy. Uh, you know, like sacred th- band of thieves or something like that. And uh, that's, we go, oh, wait, but then that, how does, and we're trying to put that tight next to like the champion of the battle master, like, oh, this guy doesn't really fit in. Like, no, the problem isn't this guy, it's these other two. Like, those don't, those don't make any sense, right? They don't fit in with our scheme. So. So yeah, what, what we, instead of us coming out and saying we've now changed the character class, what I would, what I want to do, what I'm, what we're going to do, if we have a change like that, is we premiere it on Earth Darkana, say here's a here's a new thing you can use in your campaign if you want, get playtest feedback on it, and then look and say, hey, is this actually becoming more popular than what's in the player's handbook? And then down the road, way down the road, if we did a revised player's handbook, we would then look at, okay, do we actually replace it? Right. So, but again, that would be only if we're like everyone loves this. They're like, one of the big things that I always want to do if we ever revise the player's handbook in a significant way is we're doing it based on player feedback, so everyone buying it is not surprised. They're like, oh, of course. So everyone knew that the Anteater character race, everyone wanted to play Anteaters, it was the big thing. It was like the Harry Potter of 2018 was the Anteater Chronicles. <laughs> yeah. But of course they put it in the player's handbook because that's what everyone wants to play. Or like everyone knows the Asmar, they you know they redid it in this expansion. It was really cool. Everyone really likes it. It's super popular. Every campaign has Asmar in it. Of course it's in the player's handbook now. You know, kind of like if you see like the progression from OD and D to AD and D, where they added like the Paladin and like you can play. You know, you can pick your race and your class instead of just playing a dwarf. Like those are just upgrades that most gamers are like. Oh, it's a no-brainer. People, you know. I mean, when I was a kid and we played basic D&D where Dwarf was a character class, AD&D was like, oh, I can be a Dwarf Rogue? Oh, that's really cool. I, you know, that just seemed like we're never going back, right? So, setting a very high bar for that kind of thing. Um, I would go back to, to something you mentioned, or related to something you mentioned before when uh, the talk was about comparison to Marvel. So, I wanted to ask... Uh, Where's the D&D movie now? (laughs) 
Kat, I, I, I can't say anything about that right now because there is the, still I legal think, issues. Right yeah, now. there's still legal <laughs> issues. Well, there, so. there was scheduled to be a hearing or something a while ago, and then no word after that. Yeah, I actually don't know where we are with that. I, it, anything related to legal matters, I actually actively like don't want to because I don't <laughs> okay. want to end up saying anything. Yeah, no, sorry. It's still. I know there was a court case. I think it's still in process. So. Okay. And uh, would you comment then, maybe more generally, on how the uh, relationship with Greater Hasbro is going now with the new D&D? Oh, Hasbro I mean, is... Do you, think, do you think you might get uh, D&D up to one of their uh, franchise brands? We actually... The, um, it's funny, because you know, when you see people online, they think Hasbro... Oh, Hasbro's meddling. Hasbro has been really great. I, when you think about it, we went two years without doing any significant new D&D tabletop product because we're doing our playtest, and we had huge support for that. Uh, we actually had the CEO of Hasbro was came out to visit Wizards uh, earlier this year, and uh, they're very happy with what we're doing with D&D. Uh, the idea of like really getting the, fan, the fans involved in creating D&D like, really appeals to them. They, kind of, they clearly understand that like in the 21st century, this is how great brands operate. They, like, they throw open the door and let, if you like our brand, if you like our game, we want you to be part of it with us. And so, yeah, Hasbro's been super, super supportive. You know, uh, very. It's, what we're doing is very consistent, I think, and I, from what I've seen, with how Hasbro thinks of you know Transformers and GI Joe and everything else that they're doing. The, uh, you know, the open play test that you know, to have the luxury of essentially to, to put deep, to really reduce the output of product for a few years. I mean, if we were like our own company, there is no way we ever would have been able to do that. Like, we just would not have been able to afford to go so low on product release and just focus so much on the future without essentially someone, in this case Hasbro, essentially being able to invest in the business. Say, sure, we can put money into the business for a couple of years knowing there's going to be a big payoff, not only with, hey, you're going to sell a bunch of players' handbooks, but it's also going to help the brand as a whole get people excited and engaged with it. So, yeah, Hasbro has always been very supportive. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, they, I mean, you think it's a company that does Transformers. They understand you know, geek media, geek stuff, you know, and how to get a crossover, you know, between, hey, you have this thing, it's kind of like, for people like us here at Gen Con, how do you cross it over to Main Street, right? And that's one of the things I think is really exciting when you think of D&D's future. I mean, before the Transformers movie started up, how often would you see someone walking around with, like, a Decepticon t-shirt or someone with an Autobot decal in the back of their car? You'd see it once in a while, but now you see it much more often now. It's just it's become a mainstream, you know, it's, it's just, it's like Marvel. It's just something that people know and people understand so and I think I think Hasbro has a really strong playbook for that how to make that happen at least give you the chance to make it happen if you're smart and tell good stories and have engaging characters on that note there's oftentimes speculation in terms of Hasbro's involvement with D&D um, that there's a, a pressure in terms of profit margins yeah. or whatever uh, and so there's speculation does that have anything to do with the reduction in staff and no, the con yeah. presence and so yeah we don't but the business said no they are very much hands off they don't I have never had anyone like Kool-Aid man style like burst through a door and say like oh I have 30% ROI you're, you're gone right? no, that is is there that any is pressure from, from Watsi or I mean when you're running a business there's obviously like you have a budget and then you have say hey, here's what we're aiming for in sales I mean there's always that but it's no different than it's, it has never changed I've been at Wizards 10 years and even beyond that's always just, that's just part of business but I mean d and is a very stable business and that's the thing I think I think fans online tend to think they look for these what I think of as very small events and treat it as if it's the very apocalyptic and I think that's just something that people don't really understand that d and is very steady it's not a business that has like massive I mean you release a player's handbook you're going to sell a bunch of copies but this is our third edition now that Wizards has done. You know, three, three, five, four, and fifth, so it's a fourth. You kind of understand how the business works. And so for us, it's just a matter of just telling great stories, getting people excited. There's no, like, gun pointing to our heads, like, you must make a billion dollars next year or it's over. We've, I've never been in a conversation with them, so. Then why the reduction in staff? I'm not going to talk about okay. it. I'm not yeah. going to talk about it. So, yeah, that's just, yeah, uh, it's not stuff. I mean, it's people sure. we're talking about, so I don't right, want right. to. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, there's been this push recently from folks at Wizards, um, because you s you see a lot of people online making the comment that D&D is outsourcing the books, which we all understand the definition of outsourcing, and we know that it is not literally outsourcing. Um, but why have, why have you been, I guess, trying to emphasize the 
cooperation between uh, D&D staff, proper creative team, your creative team, mm -hmm. with outside groups to make the hardcover adventure books? Oh, it, that, that's just because the... I mean, I think in some ways, when you're working on something and you feel like you're not getting any credit for it, like you get like, hey, like I, I helped make hey, this. Hey, we worked on that. Yeah, that's part of it. Okay. I think also a big part of it is I don't want... If, if people say... And I actually got a little like... I don't know. I got a little fussy about this. When people look at something like Tyranny Dragons, if they don't like it, it's not fair to say, well, that Hobold Press, those guys, blah, blah, blah. It's right. like, well, no, we worked on it too. Like, if you don't, if you don't like the fundamental storyline, that's ours. Like, that's Wizards. Right. I don't want our partners to feel like we're going to hang them out to dry. Where it's like, oh, actually, you know, yeah, you're right. Like th that adventure really did suck. It's because those guys jerks wrote it, right? No, that's not. It's it is it is collaborative. So I think in some hand, it's like, hey, if people like it, you can go. Well, I worked on that too. Like, don't uh, don't you know, ignore my contribution. But yeah, the reverse is true. If someone doesn't like it, I don't want people to blame our partners because I don't want to alienate people we work with. Right. You know, and we've had we've had great experience with our partners so far. So yeah, that, I, I don't want people to feel like you know this studio is bad or this one you know it, it is it is a collaboration if, if you have a problem with the adventure we had a hand in it if you liked it we had a hand in it that's part of it I, and I think in some ways there was this kind of it was the same kind of thing where like I think people online have this tendency to take one data point and then to draw, try to draw a very steep dramatic line based on that data point to some conclusion that's way off base so I mean it is the internet that's what it's designed for but so yeah I think it was just I, like I wouldn't hey, have a job yeah <laughs> On, on a similar uh, thread, the going to studios is kind of new yeah. uh, with this edition. Can you talk a little bit about what that process is like and, and how much Wizards is involved and at what point are they involved and, and yeah. how does that collaboration work? So basically, it all evolved out of our thinking. We use freelancers to write our books anyway. We'd always done that. Everybody does that. What if instead we took the relationship to the next level and said, well, let's reach out, rather than have a bunch of random freelancers, go to an established RPG publisher and say, why don't we just work with you? You can use your stable of writers and editors to put together a product for us. You know, And essentially that's what it grew out of, was just saying, does it make more sense to work with people who have collaborated before, editors who work with writers and writers who work together, rather than are always trying to cobble together a team. So that was the genesis of it. And realistically, other than that, I mean, it's... If anything, it makes it easier for us to work on the product because rather than con working with a bunch of individual individuals, we work with one point of contact. So in some ways, that makes some things easier. So for instance, with uh, uh, the Sword Coast Adventures Guide, it was easier for us to get all of the player mechanical material in at once and then play test that as a whole rather than like one thing that'll happen with freelancers is you'll get, oh, well, this person's two weeks late and this person's three weeks late and everything's coming in. Having one date where everything came across meant we could push everything out at once to playtest and the playtesters could see it all together. And then it actually let us say, hey, we're seeing all this feedback coming in. It actually was interesting. We had player's handbook feedback that led to us to change some Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide material. So having one point of contact, in this case, Steve Tenson, say, hey, just, hey Steve, either... Well, in this case, it's probably a good example of the collaboration. Rather than tell Steve, hey, here's a change we need you to make, it's like, well, we have the playtest data. We're just going to go ahead and make this change and tell Steve, hey, we're changing the design of this new subclass because of the player's handbook feedback. It's not anything you did wrong. You guys did what you know you did what you're supposed to do. But we've since found that this approach doesn't work. We can just go ahead and make that change and keep Steve in the loop for future changes. And then Steve communicated it. Now, it also it does have the drawback. You know, in some ways, it is an extra layer of communication. So I don't think it's just strictly the, the, the best way to do it. I think it has some benefits and it also has some drawbacks. So like everything we do, we're always looking like, well, does this make the most sense? Some projects, maybe it does make sense for us to use freelancers instead. The projects we've done so far, it's, it's made sense and the best option. But it's not like this is, and again, in the spirit of like, you know, taking one point of data and then drawing a line, like we made, you know, it's just, it's one of the various approaches we could use. And that, and that process is still evolving? Yeah, and it also made a lot of sense when we were doing the core rule books. So also, because you have to keep in mind for like Prince of the Apocalypse which came out in uh, March that book is being worked on while we're still doing the core book so that's also part of it too so so yeah the, the approach will evolve based on what makes sense for us what makes sense for the product we need and also what makes sense for our partners so should I ask some questions if the answers won't be different from they were previous years <laughs> <laughs> I mean does anyone else tell me when I go yeah. Um, last year, one of the big things that we were following was Trapdoor Technologies and Dungeonscape and their online tool set. Uh, uh, is there any movement towards anything like that, or at least getting the books digitally available or anything like that? Yes. Yeah, so we have a partner 
um, Smiteworks, who does Fantasy Grounds, uh, they have licensed uh, the content from us. And so I believe they have the core rule books and they're adding our adventures to, to their to, to, to Fantasy Grounds. This is going to be a Fantasy Grounds. Yeah. Okay. And we also, um, I think we also, um, that's who we have contracts with now. We also, it's not an exclusive deal. Okay. So that's potentially other platforms could license that content from us. Okay. But so. nothing specifically from Wizards. They're licensing to other people. That's right. We're focused more on licensing, yeah. Speaking of licensing, uh, a third-party license? Uh, no, I, I don't. Uh, no, I believe, I believe we heard last spring it would be when we'd hear something. So, <laughs> so yeah, no, we we, we were hope, I was hoping to have something up by now, but we have. I will say this: that the plans we had grew bigger and more complicated. So, what we have might not be exactly what people, but I think it's going to just be seen as objectively better. But we'll see. Obviously, only people can judge whether it is. But I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited about what we're doing. Any, but, th- any thoughts on the people who are publishing without the, the license? I mean, it's just, you know, uh, it's one of the things we wanted to do is hopefully get people to wait until the rules have been around for a while before publishing. Uh, and I think it's a little, I mean, it's dangerous. If you get out now, with this kind of unofficial stuff, you get out early, but you also run the risk of, like, you might be getting the rules wildly wrong, right? Like, you don't want to be in a position of, like, the game designer knows less than the dungeon master about how the system works and the pitch works. So, I'll tell you, if you, you see anyone trying to sell you a thing that lets you, like, ignore the concentration rule, like, they haven't, they have not played the game enough to understand what that rule actually does. Like, it's very important balancing that. Yeah, but yeah some, some of the studios you've worked with are also publishing without a license, too. Prime Reaper Thule has a 5th edition Kickstarter out right now, and, and Copal, I think, is doing stuff. Yeah, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't follow all the specific projects, sure. but yeah, yeah so... The station is empty. There was a train. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and yet. So, uh, your team, do you feel just operational? Do you feel like uh, you guys uh, are tending to bring people on board, like uh, the, the various uh, role playing companies, to create sort of story content, support content between what you guys are doing? Or do you feel like, what's the what, percentage you think in terms of things that you're asking other people to flesh out versus oh, yeah. things that you're, you're doing a lot in house. So it's probably the um, it's a little hard to peg. So typically for a campaign, we'll have like the key beats that it needs to hit mainly to ensure consistency like oh there's a licensed video game and we want to have like some of the same things. So I would say it's probably like in terms of the actual creative end of it, we probably do like 30% of the content is like hey here's what it has to have and the rest of it is the studio then taking that as a starting point going, okay, what is some cool stuff we can do to flesh things out? Uh, for mechanical stuff, it's been a little funnier because we are still like learning what people like about the player's handbook. So I'd say, for instance, in the Circos Adventures Guide, uh, Steve Kenson Green Running did like the first draft, but they were also working with, you know, we don't, didn't have our first round of player's handbook feedback in, you know, and stuff like that. So there was probably more of that. It was probably more like the Wizards probably ended up doing like it was like a 60-40 breakdown of Wizards 60, Green Ronin 40. Again, it wasn't because there was anything wrong with their design. It was just like, now that we have the player's handbook feedback, it's, oh, this approach for this class, actually people really don't like it. So we need to fix this. And it was just quicker for us to do the turnaround on that. And that's something where I think you'll see it slide a bit more to the outside studios doing more of the work as we have, hey, now we understand what works and what doesn't. And we have, more, we have more of that knowledge to draw on rather than having to collect it. So. Do you feel like you're getting uh, better at, say, fixing things by adding content? Uh, is, that, is that harder for you? Or you think, uh, I don't know, what, what are your... Because I'm hearing that, right? You don't want to take anything away that already exists. Yeah. But you want to say to fix things by adding things in. What do you feel about that process? How's that? Yeah, I, I think the way it could work... I take an example. So we had one character class where one of the subclasses was very unpopular. Like, the class was like, oh, people really liked it, but there's one thing, boom, they really hate it. So for us, it's more like, okay, for that style, like, we just basically don't design that style of subclass anymore. You know, I, I don't want to spoil any content for the Sword Coast Ventures guide, so it's be vague. But basically, it's like, okay, let's just stop doing it. So that's, like, the first step. The, um, and that was good for us. That's much easier to address because it was one subclass that had a unique mechanic. When you have the core class potentially having issues, that's where it's much harder. And I think for us, we're really just going to bite the bullet Okay, because we don't have any class that's like really like people hate it. It's more like it's not as 
it's not as strong as the other ones. But we still have more than half of the people saying, oh, we like the class. So if it had been below a half, then I think it would be a different story. But we do kind of have the luxury of most people like it. People playing it generally like it, but they are kind of aware that it's not quite where it could be. So I think that's more we think it would add, like, here's a new option to use. And then kind of like what I described earlier, like, oh, people like this option better than what's in the player's handbook. We have a lot of evidence of that. Maybe at some point it becomes the official one. Or it might get released in a expansion, and it becomes, hey, here is a variant you can use. And we see this as, like, just as official as the one. So if you're playing, like the Rangers example, you might essentially have, like, essentially add, like, a phantom choice at the start of the Ranger. Do you go by down the player's handbook path or this other path? So it becomes something bigger than a subclass, but they both get categorized as Rangers. So the, it's tricky because we've never really done it this way before. And the important thing, the important goal would be to say, if you're playing a campaign today, if we release new material, you don't have to go back and start changing your character unless you want to. Unless you're like, hey, DM, I really like that new ranger and want to play it. I want to, ch I want to change my character. Then I think that's much happier than feeling like, oh, I have to change my character. Instead, players feel like they don't have, if they don't want to change, it's fine. They just keep playing their character. Uh, I just have a couple this is kind of a deeper mechanics question. Um, you see, I see, I at least see a lot of people complaining about uh, like the fighter in the road um, getting into fights and feeling not as effective, I guess, as spellcasters in general, um, or feeling like spellcasters are doing their jobs better than them, or, or something like that. This is a common D and D threat. You've heard this a million times. Um, do you think that there are rules or ways of playing the game that people are not seeing that are causing those complaints? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because every every problem is local, right? Like when in yeah, your campaign, there's a problem you're going to see it. So what we see, generally speaking, is people think of the fighter as one of the most powerful classes in the game. Like if you just take the, the, the body of data we have. Right. So I think part of it is if you are playing in a group of optimized players, it is. If you were to take an optimizer and give them a fighter and then give them a wizard, they can get higher optimization benefits from the wizard than they'll get out of the fighter. Right. Because the wizard's entire design is, I get to pick what spell to cast and I pick from a list. And if I specialize, if I cast fireball or fighting a billion kobolds stuffed in a room, that's the perfect play. Where the fighter is more, you pick your move at the start and then repeat it. Right. It's harder to optimize that because the fighter... As, the, as conditions change, the fighter's applying the same template where the wizard gets to pick the precise size template they want to apply. So I think it's more as you get more, if the entire group as a whole is optimizing, then you see that come up. If only one person's optimizing, then it's kind of a non-issue because the fighter, unless like the fighter player is not an optimizer but feels like, no, my, my effectiveness is what I really care about. Right. But I still think those moments the wizard has, the fighter player doesn't notice because in all the other moments, the fighter's ahead. Right. So, yeah, I, th I think it's in, in the case of, like, you have a group of optimizers playing together that people feel like, oh, that... Because, we, like I said, we see the fighter as being reported as being one of the most powerful classes in the game. But then when you're on forums, people say, oh, the fighter's really weak. So it's interesting to see that. And it's been fascinating to see the disparity evolve in, like, forum culture right. and then the broader culture of people play. So, yeah, I, I, that, that's where I think that might be coming from. Thank you for listening, and if you enjoyed the show, please consider using our Amazon and D&D Classics affiliate links found on the show notes at thetomeshow.com. Thanks again, and keep gaming.